I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to another edition of I-94. Today is actually our 49th episode. Our 50th episode is actually already in the can. This is a rescheduled episode. We were supposed to have this author, I think, last month. We had some technical difficulties. So joining us from the Bay Area, she is the author of the new novel out from Doubleday, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. It is out now from Doubleday, as I mentioned, Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Ingrid, are you with us? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Is how is it out there today in the Bay Area? It is cloudy. Yep. We've had a lot of cloudy days. Yeah. It's cloudy here as well. We have more rain than London, I'm told. Um, we are. We're really pleased to have you on the show today. This is a great novel uh, that is about. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it is set uh, in Colombia uh, during the reign of Pablo Escobar, the notorious drug lord. It deals with. Uh, I think it's fair to say an abduction or an attempted abduction, and it is loosely based, uh, I believe, on events in your own life. Is that correct, Ingrid? Yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in Bogota, Colombia, and when I was young, the true, the true event that the novel is based on, my, you know, we have a lot of displaced people in Colombia, so people who have been, you know, lost their homes to either guerrillas or paramilitary members. And they, they come as displaced families to the city. When I was growing up, my mom would take in young girls from families who had been displaced. And they would often be 13 years old or 14 years old. And they would, they would live with us and they would be our, our caretakers and they would do maid work. One of the girls that my mother took in uh, happened to be living in guerrilla-occupied territory. And so she was threatened into acting against our family or else her, her family might be killed. Or they told her, we might hurt you if you don't do this. So later when I started to write the, everything that happened out of that and the idea that you could be you know, 14 years old and trying to, to be a regular 14-year-old girl but have the weight of that decision put upon you. Uh, was something that I, I almost couldn't get away from. The story haunted me for many years, and I finally decided to write it as a novel. Hi, Ingrid. I, before we get into the discussion of uh, the questions and further discussion on the novel, um, in the first chapter, I'm sorry, in the second chapter, um, you're just, uh, it's called The Girl Patrona, and you talk about... Um, what I, I, I'm, my Spanish is horrible, but uh, uh, invasions, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, yeah. the invasiones. Invasiones, yeah. is that, how, okay. Um, and you said that your mom lived there in one, and it was government land taken over by this place. I've never heard of this, and I, I tried to find more information on it about, about it online, and there doesn't seem to be. So is it like squatter's rights? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, it's, um, so... It's, it's just a, it's a settlement, um, and the, I heard the term invasion, which is invasion, and as you can imagine, it's something that the middle class might say. 
okay. but not how they would how they would call their home. They wouldn't say like we live in an invasion. Um, and in the book, I was very interested in these two classes, so like a middle class, and how does the middle class see displaced people, and how is that embedded in the language that they use to refer to it, and how do the displaced people, the displaced people see the middle class. Um, so it's, um, yeah, we, we have so many displaced people in Colombia um, that just, they come to the city and there's, I, at the time, I think there was a there was a government law that if you found land and you lived on it for more than I think it was five years, but I could be wrong, it became your land, um, and that was to to try to remedy the situation of so many people losing their homes to violence and and trying to give them a way forward. So it's a derogatory term. Yes. Okay, yeah. so it's like saying ghetto in the States, I, I assume. Like, exactly. Reminds me of like favelas in Brazil, I would think, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, there's an, one other thing I wanted to mention, too, uh, about the second chapter, The Girl Patrona. Um, you have a line that says, Ours was a kingdom with women. Uh, let me re read that again. Ours was a kingdom of women, with Mama at the head, perpetually trying to find a fourth like us or a fourth like her. A younger version of Mama, poor and eager to climb out of poverty, on whom Mama would right the wrong she herself had endured. Um, I, I love the women in your story. Uh, you know, I find this to be a very the the women characters are so strong. Um, Particular and uh, Mike and I were talking about this, but the character, uh, the main character Chula, I've never read a child's voice that was that powerful and accurate and I compare it to Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird I found it to be so I, um, I'm a librarian um, I talk about it a lot on the show but I used to be a children's librarian I've read hundreds if not thousands of children's and YA, YA books and I'm not saying this is not a children or YA novel however the voice is so hard to write of a child especially when you're an adult and I was just, I just want to commend you on that because her voice was so realistic and so childlike, but also growing up in, in a very uh, difficult and strange time. Um, I just wanted to commend you on that. And I think that was a, a her, Chula's voice is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Thank you so it, much. It's perfect for, for U.S. readers who aren't familiar with the situation in Colombia in the 80s because she's, Chula's being introduced to, to this. Right complex system the same way we are so she's asking the same questions that we probably would right. what's the difference between a paramilitary group and FARC what what is FARC right and this is uh, you know that brings up a point that I wanted to make before we get into our first reading which introduces the uh, the character of Patrona um, you don't need to know a lot of modern Colombian history and Colombian history unfortunately uh, is rather bloody uh, there was a, a huge paramilitary campaign there was a right-wing government there were uh, militants uh, and it is only recently that Colombia has had a peace agreement and has demilitarized. And, of course, uh, Inger, correct me if I'm wrong, but your family came over uh, to the United States as refugees from Bogota during that period. Am I correct? We came, so I came alone to the U.S. in 2002, and I, and I came for college. We did leave Colombia when I was, when I was 14, and we went to Venezuela 
And you know the thing is that we thought about, you know, we, we had several kidnapping attempts happen in our family. And we thought about applying for refugee status. And what we felt was that there were, there were so many uh, stories that were worse than ours that we didn't feel like we could even get it, that we couldn't even qualify. So what happened for us was that um, in my mother heard that there was uh, a guy who was visiting from overseas and he was someone who, who was able to place people um, in different companies in different countries. And so my mother went to this party and she didn't know any English, but she learned two words in English, and she just walked up to this man, and she grabbed his hand, um, and he, he just, she just told him, my daughters, my daughters. And so somehow, he, this man who could only speak English understood from that interaction that our family was in some kind of danger. And so in a, in a few weeks, he, he appointed my dad to a job in Venezuela, and that's how we were able to leave the country. And yeah. your father was kidnapped, and the story was actually, it's in the afterword of the novel. Um, it's actually kind of a humorous story. I, I mean, it's as humorous as it could be in the situation. Do you want to tell us the story about your father's kidnapping? Yeah, so he was he was working, and he was going to come to see us in, in Bogota, and he was maybe five hours away from us. So he was about to get into his car when a bunch of guerrilla members surrounded him and they, they took him. So they marched him into a jungle and they took him to, the, to a guerrilla camp. They bound his hands behind his back and they put him in this dark shed and they sat him in this chair and he described it as the longest night of his life he couldn't he couldn't sleep um, and he was just you know sitting upright on a chair the whole night and the thing is that if you're kidnapped in Colombia it could be an ordeal that lasts between four months to maybe 16 years so you My don't God. really know when you're gonna emerge from this you don't know if it's gonna be quick and there's people that just actually never come back and they disappear so you really have no idea what's, what's going to happen to you. So I can't imagine the fear and anxiety that he must have felt that night. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt next, and say yeah. I, I don't mean humorous. Uh, the story, I guess the, the best way to phrase it is crazy. The story's crazy, so I'm yeah. sorry. It, it wasn't funny. Although I, I, I'm sure in hindsight, you know, I don't know if your dad has a crazy sense of humor or not, but it, it, as far as a lot of the stuff that I've read about, the ending was pretty pretty uh, satisfactory for your family. I'm sorry, go ahead and finish. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, so it is. it does get, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy what happens. But so the, so the next day, the guerrilla uh, members come and get him, and they're going to take him to meet the boss of the guerrilla camp. They walk into the shack. They open the doors for him. They kind of push him in, and in the shack, is his childhood friend, who's now the, the, the boss of the guerrilla camp. So, of course, they haven't seen each other for years, so his childhood friend is like, 
Gilberto, how have you been? You know, I, are you married? Like, do you have children? Like, what's going on? You look so well, you know. Um, and and so, <laughs> so the whole time, my, my dad is, still has his hands bound. Um, but they, they catch up in this, the strangest, you know, reunion ever. And, but then he's, he's let go because they know each other. So my dad was let go. And he just got into his car, and he just drove as fast as he could um, to to our house. Um, and yeah, it it was such a strange what a strange coincidence to happen. A very a very lucky coincidence as well. We're going to actually play uh, a quick selection from Ingrid's book. This is actually one of the uh, uh, chapters about the servant girl, Patrona. Uh, it's the kind of introduction to the family that she has. Uh, as always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. And this music, of course, is from the International Anthem Recording Company. It is this week from Dos Santos. We'll be right back after this selection. This is from Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a novel by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. At our house, Petrona received her first instructions in washing, ironing and mending, scrubbing the floors, cooking, making the beds, watering the plants, dusting, fluffing the pillows. Petrona didn't look 13, though that's what Mama said. Her face was ashy and her eyes bitter old. Her hair was cut short like a boy's and she wore a white apron with border lace like a fine tablecloth. She always had flushed cheeks and red knuckles. Petrona left every day at six in the evening, but there was a room in the back of our house past the indoor patio that was all her own. There, when Cassandra and I got back from school, we would find Petrona sitting on the bed and listening to the radio. We could see her plainly through the clear window of the bedroom. She sat motionless, hands clasped against her chest, the muffled sounds of men singing over soft guitars escaping from under the crack of her door. Cassandra and I pressed our noses against the window. We watched Petrona as she rocked, but most of the time she remained very still sitting there, like a lifeless ragdoll slumped against the wall. I wondered what Petrona thought about as she closed her eyes. I imagined that something hard was swelling from inside of her, and if we left it alone, Petrona would turn to stone. At times I was sure it was beginning to happen because the light began glowing gray on her cheeks and her chest wasn't moving with her breath. To me, Petrona looked like one of those smooth plaster statues on display in private courtyards and public squares all over Bogota. Mama said they were saints, but Papa said they were random people who had done something good and remarkable. In our house, Petrona wore a cloud of silence wherever she went. Her footsteps had no sound. She deliberately lifted and placed her feet one after the other on the carpet, inaudible like a cat. Then, the only noise announcing Petrona was the sloshing of soapy water, which she carried in a bright green bucket to the second floor, holding the handle with both hands, advancing one elephant step at a time. I could hear her panting as she carried things up and down the house. She carried trays with food, mops, bags of clothes, boxes with toys, cleaners, disinfectants. When I heard the first murmurs of her panting, I left my half-done homework on the bed and stood at the door of the bedroom that I shared with Cassandra. It opened to the left at the top of the stairs. As I watched Petrona, she looked up at me and smiled weakly. Then she cleared her throat and went down the hall towards Mama's bedroom. I always imagined the silence in Petrona's throat like dry fur draping over her vocal cords. And when she cleared her throat, I imagined the fur shaking a little and settling smooth like hair on a fruit. Petrona's silence made Mama nervous. 
Mama put all her energy into making Patrona speak. Mama shared countless stories about her family in the Northeast, her childhood, her Indian grandmother seeing ghosts, but Petrona never told stories of her own. Petrona only punctuated Mama's stories with, Si, Senora Alma. No, Senora Alma. And she shook her head when she wanted to convey surprise or disbelief. Cassandra and I were intrigued by Petrona's silence. We hung around to see if she talked with Mama. We decided it was just like a street cat when a conjoling stranger offered a bowl of milk. We made it a point to count the syllables Petrona used each time she spoke. We pressed our fingertips to our thumbs and pronounced her syllables in our head. We counted obsessively and slowly we realized she never spoke more than six syllables. We started to think that maybe Petrona was a poet or maybe someone under a spell. And that was a reading from Fruit of the Drunken Tree with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Uh, Ingrid, I wanted to thank you for being a trooper, too, about the cancellation. We had uh, lost the radio station to a storm the first time you were supposed to be on, so I appreciate that. And uh, the second thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned in an email that you had some ties to Chicago, and I believe you said that when you uh, first immigrated to the States, did you go to school here? Yeah, I went to Columbia College. Um, in Chicago, and it was, so if you can imagine, it was my first experience of winter. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And before, so the coldest that I had experienced was 50 degrees. (laughs) And when people told me that I needed, when people told me that I needed to buy a coat, I couldn't understand, I couldn't (laughs) even imagine. It's hard to wrap your head around 40 below wind chill factor when you're from Columbia, I imagine. Yes, yeah. Did you go sledding? <laughs> and how long yes, were you? eventually. That's a Midwestern. Eventually history. I went sledding, yeah. And how long were you here in Chicago? And I was just curious what neighborhood you were in. I was in Ukrainian Village. Um, that was also my first neighborhood when I moved here. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I love that. Yeah, I love that image. I was in Chicago for eight years. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. So you're technically a Chicagoan. <clears throat> yeah, we can adopt you then. <laughs> yeah, I. It was my first home in the U.S., so I have a I have a very soft uh, spot in my heart for Chicago. Yeah, we're all transplants too. Jamie and I were crazy enough to stay here, so we've been here between the two of us over fifty years. Yeah. This yeah. is a, Ingrid, I wanted to get back in a little bit to the book. This is an interesting story of, of young girls, and I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, you know, obviously some of this is based on, on your life and your experience, but it's, it's interesting uh, for me uh, to see a book about young girls' relationships and, and teenage girls' relationships. What attracted you uh, to that as a subject? I, you know, I was, um, I, I just always grew up around women and I, it was always just my favorite thing to do as a, as a young kid was to just sit and listen to women talk about their lives. Um, and I, you know, Columbia at the time and, you know, probably even now is a very sexist country. And so to me, encountering, you know, women like my aunts or my mother who were very strong-willed and who could get their way um, and kind of knew what they were doing and, and reveled in being strong, 
was a stark contrast to to the to the to the pressures that society put on us, um, and I and so I think it, I was just always in complete awe of that. You know, one of my favorite things that my mother told me about when she was growing up was that she so her her mother, my grandmother, would tell her that she had to wash her her siblings, her brother's clothes, and she had to make their dinner, and she had to serve them before she served herself. Um, and my mother just refused to do this. So she said, no, I'm not going to do this. And she, she got beaten for not doing it. So she still refused to do it. She got beaten again. And so what my mom did is that she, she took a pair of scissors, and then she cut her hair as short as it would go, and she came to her, <laughs> to my grandmother, and said, look, I'm a boy now, so I don't have to do anything now. Uh, and that, just that creativity um, and, and that strong will is something that was just so inspiring to me. Um, and so I've, I've always been attracted to how women uh, forge relationships with each other, um, how their friendships evolve, how they live in a world that's maybe not made for them. Ingrid, the, uh, the novel's been out a few months now, right? Yes. So yes. I, ma- I imagine... July. You, July? Mm-hmm. And I imagine you've done some, some readings with, um, with audiences. I was just curious if you had gotten any reaction from people about Chula's mother, um, because she is is she comes off to me as the strongest woman in the story but she's also kind of controversial you know she has uh strange men over that chula doesn't know who they are and it's always kind of looming in the background and i feel like you 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 really leave it up to the reader to decide for themselves um you know whether whether she's in the right or wrong have you had any um strong reader reactions to chula's mother uh, what I've heard is when people come up to me and they talk about Chula's mother, always the comments is, she's my favorite character in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she's, uh, I, you know, actually based, each member of the family in the novel is based on my own family. So that was really fun uh, for me. <laughs> was it fun for them? <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, well, all my family members are extroverted, okay. so when I, I told them that, that I was basing a character on them, their reaction was like, oh, I'm like the main character, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I have to disagree. Chula is my favorite character, hands down. One of my favorite characters in literature in a long, long time. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Um, yeah, people usually love, they love Chula. It's, I, I, there's three camps that I've, um, that I've encountered. It's people love Chula, they love Alma, the mom character, or they love the grown-up. Um, so maybe there can be, I don't know. But I think Twilight had, like, um, they had different camps. Wait, <laughs> Twilight, yeah, Bella, Bella and whatever, Bella and, Bella and Charles, is it? Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a scene on uh, page 116 with that involves sparklers and uh, Chula decides to grab 
the red hot metal and uh, squeeze it between your fingers and that really uh, that resonated with me because I was one of those kids that would grab a sparkler. I one time I my mom had a macrame planter and I wanted to see what a lighter would do to it and I set our house on fire when I was like ten years old. Uh, fortu- <laughs> fortunately, we we caught it in time. But see, those are the kind of things that children do. Like she knows she's not supposed to touch that sparkler. It's glowing hot. She just grabs it with her fingers and burns herself. And, and everyone's just like, what are you doing? And um, But, yeah, I agree, I agree with you. That, that was a detail that I also picked up on. And it felt very real to me. And that, that brings me, I think, to a point you're trying to get at, Jeremy. A lot of the activity between the younger characters felt very authentic to me. It reminded me very much of how kids acted and how kids talked. Which I think is a very difficult thing to do, and I think that's kind of what we're we're trying to get at here, Ingrid. Is it's it's very difficult to channel voices in literature. Whenever you're trying to write dialogue, and it's something we discuss in the show, and I, I know you happen to be a book critic as well uh, in the Bay Area, but it, dialogue is is one of those tricky things because if dialogue doesn't um, feel right in a reader's head, it completely breaks the spell of the book. And the way a book and a narrative functions is if that dialogue feels authentic to not just you as the author, but to a wide variety of readers. And I think one of the things that is is telling of this book is all the characters, their internal motions and their external actions felt very much like someone and age appropriate. And that to me, I thought was, was something that, that I think really needs to be highlighted and discussed in your book. And I, I wanted to compliment you on that and, and ask you really how difficult was that for you to pull off? Um, you know, it, it, I kind of thought of it as I wrote, um, I was trying to write into the voice, and there was a moment, you know, when it comes to Chula's voice and also Petrona's voice, there was a moment where I came across a turn of phrase that was so unique, and it was almost like tuning into a radio station where you hear like the, the garbled noise of the static and then suddenly you, you, you hear something that's clear. Um, and it, it kind of felt like that where suddenly I found, I found her voice. And every time that I sat down, I would, just, I would try to tune in into the, same, into the same spot. But one thing that I did is I watched there's this great documentary um, that's called Seven. And it's a British documentary, and it, oh, it seven follows... Up. You're, you're talking about 7 Up, right? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. 7 Up. Yeah, it follows different kids who, uh, every seven years, you, you, you see them. And, and I use that to, to kind of uh, look at how, how someone's voice can change over time. And I remember wa- I watched it a few times, just trying to get a sense of what it was like when they were seven versus 14 um, because uh, Chula at the beginning is seven and Petrona is 13. Um, so I, I, I used that and then I also talked to a lot of seven-year-olds <laughs> and That's just awesome. tried to see what, yeah, what, what, what it was like, what they were interested in, what, what was their humor like, what they misunderstood what they thought they understood, but they, you know, Did not. got completely wrong. Yeah. There was another, uh, to tie into this, there, there's another scene later in the book where um, a bomb goes off and Chula's sleeping and, and, and 
a bunch of glass rains down on her and and you know it's and she, the first thing she asks are about the cows um and the cows come up quite a bit in the story there um i i just want to ask uh did you have cows across the street when you were growing up is is that where it came from or is this something you created because those cows to me were another uh the the theme of them or however you want to phrase it the reoccurrence of them also reminded me you know going back to the authentic voice and um well i guess the question is what's the story with the cows <laughs> <laughs> um i did have cows uh out of my window when i was growing up and it was so strange to me because we you know living in the middle of the city you don't see any animals that much and so encountering the cows and looking at the cows was this strange world into into nature and whenever we would go on road trips in Colombia and I would see cows um, in the in the mountainside it would just I was just I was just in love with cows I just loved the way that they move um, and the way that they they kind of like lay down it was just all so they felt so sweet and it was so benevolent to me um, that when I was thinking of, of like what what animal could Kachula interact with or like what's her world um, made out of it's you know it's, it's the TV and the news it's it's her her mother who has men over um, but then it's also just her looking out the window and what does that mean to her? We actually—that's uh, great stuff. And we, unfortunately, we have to take a quick break here because we do have to remind people that uh, first of all, they're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, one hundred five point five FM Lumpen Radio. We also have to pause for some. Uh, Underwriting for the folks that make this station possible. Before we do, I just want to remind people that if you're interested in the film series that Inger was talking about, it's called the Up Series. Uh, it was done by Paul Almond and Michael Apted. It's widely available uh, online. It was produced for British television in uh, the 1960s right through the present day. So after these uh, short messages and another reading from Ingrid's book, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, we'll be back again. We are talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. You're listening to I-94. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. To visit Abuela Maria, we had to get our driving directions from the newspaper. The headline had read, Safe Routes for the Holiday Break, in boldface and capitals, but when Papa tore out the map, all that was left was a string of illegible half-letters. The letters spread ornamentally atop the bird-like map of Colombia. In the car, Papa said the reason there were safe routes was because of Pablo Escobar and his men, or, as they called themselves, Los Extraditables. I didn't know Pablo Escobar had a group. I asked Papa if they played instruments, but Papa said they were not that kind of group. Rather, they wrote letters to the press, left missives on the radio, and took credit for car bombs and kidnappings. Papa said the only thing Los Extraditables feared was going to prison in the United States where nobody spoke their language and they would let them die like dogs. Papa said they had a motto, we prefer a tomb in Colombia to a jail in the United States. Cassandra had one earphone in, the other she was holding in her hand, rock music quietly buzzing from it. She explained that Pablo Escobar was the president of the narco-paramilitary to me as if I didn't already know. Yes, but did you know he's a baron? I asked. 
Yes, but did you know he's a judge killer? I didn't have a comeback and was forced to remain quiet as Cassandra nodded with her eyebrows raised long after she had spoken. The road out of Bogota climbed between buildings with bay windows and marble surfaces, then snaked through the cold moor of Subo where rainwater puddled in the grasslands and mirrored the sky. There were cows and horses eating the valleys. Papa said, In all the history of this country, there hasn't been one newspaper that has printed a map with safe routes before. Not one. I could see him in the rearview mirror. Earlier that morning, Papa told Mama he wasn't sure if he was fired, having left the oil site in such a hurry, but he had paid vacation days and would find a job in the meantime if need be. Now he seemed at ease. He ran his fingers over the wiry, thick fur of his mustache. I felt anxious not knowing if Papa had a job, and then I remembered Petrona wearing Mama's slippers. I leaned forward to the middle between the front seats to ask if anyone had noticed. I opened my mouth, but then I realized I could get Petrona fired. Everyone stared. Did we buy Petrona a Christmas present? Papa glanced at Mama. Oh no, we forgot, Mama said. Let's get her a nice perfume though. I'll bet she'll like it. I sat back thinking I was right and not sharing what I had seen Petrona do. It was possible after all that Petrona slipped on Mama's house shoes at the last minute to go out into the garden to see why the car's headlights were on and nobody was coming into the house. But why had she been in our house? Papa said, What in the world would a girl like Patrona do with perfume? Mama rolled her eyes. You never understand anything, Antonio. Either way, Patrona had fixed my arm and stayed with me during Galan's funeral when Mama and Cassandra left. Telling my family about Patrona would only cause them to judge her unfairly. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94 here on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. You were just listening to an excerpt from Fruit of the Drunken Tree. It is a novel by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. It is out now from Doubleday. Ingrid has joined us by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome back, Ingrid. Thanks so much for sticking around with us. Yes, my pleasure. So the excerpt that we just heard was uh, a particularly interesting one. And again, I do want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt and the band Dos Santos. But I was fascinated by the fact that there would be, uh, in, in newspapers, uh, safe driving routes through a country uh, pictured and published. And I, I have to believe this is a real detail. Was this something that is authentic to your experience growing up in Colombia? Yes, yeah, that was the real that was the real thing. Every every year, the newspaper would print um, a map with the the safe roads that you could take depending on where you were going. And uh, so we always we always I remember my dad always looking at it and always being like, okay, like we have we can take this road um, to go see your grandmother. So yeah, we we did it. A lot of people also did it, and we also kept our eyes on the on the on the news because often there would be there would be uh, conflicts over territory, and so it, they're kind of roving, you know, moving uh, conflicts. And so one day they could be in in one state, and then the next day they would be maybe getting closer to where you wanted to go. So you really had to watch the news in order to go around, go around that, and you know, so that you, maybe you wouldn't be in the middle of a crossfire or something. One of the uh, the real life figures who looms large in the story is, is of course Pablo Escobar, um, 
and it seems like the way he was perceived in the country was was really polarizing. Half the country thought he was a hero, and half thought he was a horrible villain. Um, and it it's almost kind of reminiscent of another cultural figure now, the president of the United <laughs> States. Um, do you remember your impressions of of Pablo Escobar as a kid, hearing the way other people talked about him? And like, do you recognize that polarization in in our culture with anyone now? Yeah, I I do remember that. I you know there's the one moment where he they announced on the on the TV that they had shot him and he was now dead. I remember I was I was numb because it you know I wasn't the kind of person to be like yes this person died. <laughs> I was always maybe too sensitive. I'm like, oh no, they died. Um, and my sister, she she like she pumped her fist and she was like, yes. And um, the 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 girl who was living with us, who was our caretaker at the time, was uh, deeply sad that this happened, and she and she cried a little bit. Uh, so that was that was the moment where I where I realized just how different um, people thought of him, and it tended to to be tied to what class you were part of. So uh, Pablo Escobar was someone that attacked. Um, well, he you know with the. I think, you know, the lower classes were kind of enamored with Pablo Escobar because he was, at first, he was just someone who, who um, he went to graves and he dug them and he stole whatever riches there were, and that's how he was making a living. So like a Robin and, Hood figure, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so people really looked up to that. Um, but... To, to the rest of, of the country, he was someone that was setting off car bombs in public places. Um, and he was a very ruthless, actually very scary man. Um, so that those two points of view uh, really existed. And when, when, he, when he died, there were fireworks in, in Bogota. And it was like it was a new year. Um, it was that kind of celebration. And in Medellin, where Pablo Escobar is from, uh, it, the whole city was mourning. That's fascinating. I wanted to ask you a question, um, and I'm going back to the cows. I apologize. Um, I also love cows. And But there's a, there's a scene after the bombing um, where your, your mother takes a shell that was given to you, I mean, sorry, not to you, to Chula by... Patrona's uncle smashes it with a hammer and then sets it on fire. Um, I, I, I didn't know if this was just a random thing just because of you got the shell prior to the bombing or is there some superstition um, around seashells or was it tied, uh, tied to your family in some way? Yeah, so, so my mom was, she was uh, a psychic uh, when I was growing up and she had a psychic business in the attic of our house. And uh, my grandfather was a faith healer. Um, so, so all these kind of signals and symbols and there's, 
was very present in my life. And the, the belief is that if someone gives you something and they have kind of ill will toward you, um, that this, this energy that you took uh, could explode in, in different ways. So, you know, you can have some kind of accident or, um, I don't know, some, you, you have some kind of bad luck. Um, and that's what, that's what it was based on. I want to hang out with your family sometime. People sound fascinating. Their family's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, they're really fun. I apologize. I was was just going to say that, yeah, there's no no seashell superstition. I'm sorry for interrupting. I just I got excited about hanging out with your family. So yeah, faith healer. I mean that that's actually a really wild thing. I I guess I hadn't really thought of the idea of faith and healers. a psychic. I mean, come on. I like what what are you doing Thanksgiving? Well, you obviously wouldn't celebrate Thanksgiving, but what are you doing holidays? It's got to be amazing. Uh, what do we do? You know, when one thing that we like to do in the new year, you take a glass of water and you. You crack an egg into it, and you put it um, under your bed where you're sleeping for the for the night of when it becomes the new year. And and the next day you look at it, um, and it's supposed to. If you see any kind of, um, if the egg part of the egg looks like there's like different things, there's different symbols that you can see in the in the egg, but it tells you how your new year is going to go. So we used to do that for New Year's. That's amazing. Yeah, if you get a uh, text message from Jeremy with a picture of an egg on January 1st, uh, you'll, you'll know why that came up. Um, uh, we, we've got about uh, 15 minutes left in the broadcast, but before we, we go further, I did want to play a pivotal scene. We've recorded uh, the aftermath of the kidnapping, and I do want to talk about that and have uh, Ingrid discuss that. So we're going to play our final recording, and then we're going to be right back. We're talking with Ingrid Rojas-Contreras. She's the author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree. You're listening to I-94. I told her, I saved your girl, protect me. She took the rings off her fingers and put them in my pockets and told me to escape. She pushed cash into my hands and told me to get away. I said, there's nowhere, they've threatened my family, who knows what they'll do. She took a cross from her mantle and pushed it into my hands too. She said, I'll pray. And I understood I had risked everything for another woman's daughter and nobody would do the same for me. I thought I could leave at once. I got on the bus that would take me to the central station. I would buy a ticket and go as far as I could afford. I would clean and sweep houses to make more money. I would put thousands and thousands of kilometers between me and Gorion. Gorion had told me not to fear. The girls would be kept in a nice apartment. A nice abuela would cook their meals for a week at most, then they would be freed. Then I learned of one girl who was shot point blank in her forehead. Gorion argued the little girl was dead because the family did not listen and got the police involved and so the men had to shoot the girl. You understand, right? He had told me. The men cannot compromise their morals. I told Gorion I wanted out. I would not deliver the girls. I had changed my mind. Gorion clucked his tongue. Petro, don't be so foolish. Why say a thing like that now? You know who we all are, see? It's too late. I was going, I was in a vehicle with moving wheels and soon I would be far, far away. I would go to the coast like little Ramon. I would get a job selling trinkets and coconuts on the beach. 
I would wrap my hair in a bandana like the women of the coast and I would continue north to the Pacific. My new name would be Claramanta, like in the telenovela. I had never seen the ocean. Maybe it was as beautiful as they said. Claramanta would sunbathe by the ocean. She would drink coconut water from the round hut. A young boy sat next to me and I made room in the seat. He was young like my Aurora, little Aurora. What would happen to her? Maybe in time, once I started to make money, I would send her anonymous envelopes filled with cash. It was all I could do for her now. The trouble would be in how to disguise the money so that it wouldn't be stolen along the way. The little boy next to me was unwrapping a small candy in his lap. Maybe I could put the cash inside a chocolate bar. They said the people that worked in the post offices held every envelope to the light and if they saw it had cash, they stole it. But they wouldn't suspect a chocolate bar. The ears of the boy were dirty, covered in dust. At least he didn't smell. Maybe I could hide the cash inside toys instead. Maybe Aurora would figure it out. Maybe she knew I would want to write her letters. She would think to look inside. The little boy lifted his hand up to his palm, bringing the sweet to his mouth, and just then someone sat in the seat in front. The man in front had a mole at the back of his neck in the same place Gorion did. How many people going around with identical moles? The little boy opened his palm and I turned to look at him. He blew on his palm like he was blowing me a kiss and white dust flew on my face. I tried to get up and the man in the seat in front who not only had Gorion's mole but also I could see clearly now his face was telling me, stay Patrona, stay. And so I stayed, thinking. That's Gorion's voice too, and the other voice, the voice in my head telling me to get up and run quieted now. It died down. I waited for whatever else this man would tell me to do, and then I was swimming in a black dark. And welcome back. That was another reading, our final reading, in fact, from Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a novel by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. That is the aftermath of a kidnapping attempt. And since that is a, a, a seminal moment in the book, uh, and it's freighted with a lot of stuff that we actually haven't gotten into because this is an only an hour-long show, I wonder, Ingrid, if you could take us through a little bit of that because um, there are a, a number of class differences and a number of um, points of view that are kind of going on in that scene. Uh, it's a sympathetic scene in a number of ways, if you've read the book. But, of course, a lot of people who are involved in the scene would not be exactly very sympathetic with, with Patronus in that moment. Um, so what, is, what are the, the classes? Yes. Like, I mean, you know, you have the, the person who's the maid who's been involved in this kidnapping, and then, of course, you have the, the family members who have been involved in the kidnapping. The mother, who's the mother. Who, who used to be part of that, Correct. that cultural class. Yeah. Um, I, you know... Classes was something that I, it was kind of the first thing that I understood and that really took my attention when I was a young girl in Colombia. Mm -hmm. So my, so Alma um, is someone who grew up in, in, a, in a settlement in the northeastern part of, of the country. And so uh, she grew up in kind of like the equivalent place where Petrona is, is now living in Bogota. Um, and so she, Alma character has some, um, she feels some responsibility to, to Petrona, but she's also kind of torn uh, between that and protecting her own family. Um, and then there's, you know, Petrona, uh, she's, all these, all those displaced families are kind of destitute and they don't have a lot of options and they don't have a lot of recourse to getting out of the situation that they're in. And 
so Petrona is, is from that class and Alma now, the, or the family, Chula's family and Alma's mother, they live in a gated community which was very common in Bogota. If you were middle class, uh, you would live in these gated communities and it just created such a different experience of what the city was because everything around you was controlled and safe um, and there would be, you knew that the, the crime couldn't get in. And of course, you know, at the end of this novel, like of course the violence does get in. Um, and when you, when you live in a, in a settlement, your, your experience of the city is much more violent and you're so, so much more closer to, to all kinds of crime and you are maybe threatened into becoming part of something. And that is Petrona's uh, experience. Um, so yeah, in, in this scene, um, Alma is just is torn between wanting to help and being, you know, completely unable to help. I have a question about uh, the displacement. Were people displaced by industrialization, the the spread of the cities, or was it the cocaine trade? Um, what, it, what is displacing the families in Colombia at this time? So what was going on was that, you know, Pablo Escobar, uh, with cultivation of, of drugs, became such a uh, good business for him that guerrilla members um, started to see that this was something that they could do to finance their war against the government, so their leftist-leaning guerrillas. And, and so they started to, to try to, to get territory. What, what would often happen is they would um, show up at a farmer's land and say, you will now cultivate this. Um, and, but then uh, Pablo Escobar started to kind of finance paramilitary groups to fight for land against the guerrillas. And it all became very uh, hard if you were a farmer, if you lived in a, in a rural area. Um, someone could just point to you and say, like, he's a guerrilla sympathizer when the paramilitary came by. And uh, you would be scapegoated, you might be, you might be shot, you might be disappeared. So a lot of people uh, would leave. They would have to flee. Um, and if also if you refused to, to give over land either to the paramilitary or the guerrillas, they might just burn down your house in order to take your land. Uh, so, so that happened all over Colombia, and we had just waves and waves of displaced people come to the big cities looking for, for a way forward, for a way to, to make uh, a living to survive. That, that's an amazing story, and you know this again. The book is is set during the the height of the cocaine trade. I did want to ask you, I guess, a quasi professional question. Uh, you know, we're book reviewers here in Chicago. You uh, have a sideline working for the NPR affiliate in the Bay Area, KQED. I want to just ask you, uh, how how has that experience been for you? We we've been kind of surprised here when we started this show up. We did it kind of on a wing and a prayer. And, didn't actually think anybody would care about it, and we've been surprised at, at the response and how many people actually still want to talk about books. Has that been your experience in the Bay Area as well? Yes, yeah, I love talking about books, and you know, actually reading books so slowly because you have to 
deconstruct them and really think about how they're made um, has taught me so much about writing, actually, and how how books can can function. Um, and I I love publishing things, and it, it means so much to to the writer and to the literary community. And I also always do it tying into an event, so I'm always trying to push people into going to things. Right. Uh, and it's it's been so wonderful. Um, I, yeah, I absolutely love doing it. And I am surprised when, when people tell me that they read something. Because I always assume, oh, nobody's going to read this. <laughs> well, it's but weird they because do. Yeah. all the jobs I've had, there, there, there are never any readers. Like, uh, none of my coworkers want to talk books because, you know, they, they're into movies or, you know, watching comedy or, or whatever. And then, and then we'll do a show at the bookstore and all these people show up geeking out on books. And it's just like... <laughs> what hole did these people crawl out from? It, it, it's strange and amazing. Even some librarians don't read books. I mean, it's really weird because, I mean, we do have to do reader's advisory, but it's based a lot of times on journals and, and reviews. Yeah. So pe- we, librarians do read reviews. And Ingrid, I'm looking forward to uh, checking out some of your reviews. And, and do you have anything on the pipeline? We have another book coming out in the future here. Well, I am, so the, the book that I'm working on is, is a memoir, family memoir. Um, it's about my grandfather and my mother. Um, both my mother and I lost our memories at different times. Um, and it's, it's just kind of a, a strange story where stories kind of repeat themselves across these three generations. So it's, it's a lot of fun to write. Well, I'm going to hit you up when it comes out. We'd yeah, love we to talk will. to you again. Are you reading anything, by the way, that uh, of note that you want to mention before we, before we break for the day? Oh, I am loving Friday Black. Uh, have you guys read this one? I have not no. yet. What's what it, it, it called? Friday Black. Friday Black. Oh, no, I've read, I've read reviews of it, though. It's got a really crazy cover. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's a book of short stories. And uh, the writer is its kind of uh, turning simple questions, like what would happen if all of us were less emotional um, and taking them to the most chilling uh, end. So it, it's, it's beautiful. It's about race and it's about um, kind of like social constructs and everything that, you know, looking around that you're kind of, creeped out by America right now. It's all in this in in these short stories and they're all explored in this in beautiful writing. Hmm. That sounds fascinating. I think we're gonna have to check that out. Well today we have been very thrilled to have been joined by the author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Ingrid, thank you so much for making thank time you, to Ingrid. talk to Ingrid. us from the Bay Area. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We will be back next week with uh, Megan O'Gleblin. She's going to be talking about her essays. And we will see you bright and early next Sunday. Thanks so much. You've been listening to I-94 and Lumpin' Radio. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured author Ingrid Rojas Contreras whose new book, Fruit of the Drunken Tree is out now from Doubleday. This episode originally aired on November 4th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt 
Show intro and promo voiced by David Green. Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.